I don't know how often you get uh, salesmen coming to your home. Uh, you know, the solar panel guy, the, uh, the gutter replacement guy. Um, there's some other guys too. It's probably only about maybe once or twice a month for us, but when I hear the doorbell ring, because those are the only people that ring the doorbell, um, and then I look out the window and I see that dreaded clipboard, you know, you're like, oh, you know. Um, I just kind of roll my eyes, take a deep breath, and I'm, I'm honestly too ashamed to just sit in the house and not come to the door because they probably know I'm home. So pretty much every time I will go to the door, I will open it, I will talk for a minute or two or maybe a second or two, and I will dispatch them as as nicely and quickly as possible. The other day I was coming in from saying no to some guy who was trying to sell me a book about how to, to eat better, um, which I probably should have taken a second look at. Um, but I started thinking to myself, what would work on me? You know, what, if you wanted to sell me something, if you wanted to, to influence me somehow, what approach actually would work? It wasn't an easy question to answer because, like most of us, I'm not that easy to get through to. And I don't know that I ever came to an answer for that. What would work on me? Um, but it was an interesting question. We're getting toward the end of our series on 1 Peter 3.15 about sharing Jesus with unbelievers. And the phrase we're going to look at uh, today is going to take us a little bit in that direction. If you want to share the gospel of Christ with someone, what is the best approach? What is the best approach. But as we look more carefully at the phrase we'll look at today, we're going to see that it's going to take us deeper than that, and it's going to begin to challenge us to take a closer look at how we view other people and how we, even how we view ourselves in the light of the gospel. It's going to be a real challenge. Let's read through our verse one more time, this First Peter 3.15. Uh, we'll project it on the screen for you once again. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Today is the last day we're going to be in this verse. We've pretty much talked about all the different sections of it, and today we're going to look at the gentleness and respect part. Gentleness and respect. And our first temptation, of course, is going to, to be to see these things as tactics, Right? Strategies we use when we're trying to convince someone to follow Jesus. If we're just nice enough and polite enough and gentle enough and respectful enough, then that will be a big plus, we figure. And that's certainly a true statement. You catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, right? That's how the expression goes. But we need to realize that gentleness, we're going to talk about gentleness first, but gentleness, while it may describe the best approach for sharing Christ, is not so much a tactic as it is a character quality. In fact, it's part of what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. It's something we need to cultivate and get into our lives so that when the time comes, we'll be able to express it and bring it to the forefront when we need it. Uh, I, I read an account that reminded me of that this week. It was a story that aired um, on National Public Radio. It was part of their popular radio show, This American Life. And one of the episodes they had concerned a young man by the name of David Dickerson. And uh, David was brought up in a Christian household, but he had rejected his parents' faith. And he left for college, and he didn't come back to visit his parents for 10 years. He was now making a long overdue visit to his mom and dad, but he was going expressly for the purpose of trying to undermine his father's faith. So that's the situation and here's how David himself, the young man, describes the experience. He says, I had all this ammunition. 
and I couldn't wait to use it. And I remember thinking, this is a showdown because my dad and I were at war. My dad didn't know it, but I was at war with him. I was at war with all Christians. And I was just waiting for an excuse to have a shot. So when his father innocently mentioned some mission work he'd been praying about, David unleashed his fury. He said, I just rambled on like this. And I knew essentially what I, while I was doing this, I was also assaulting his dream. You know, saying everything he was excited about that he was sharing with me was misbegotten, was a bad idea, was morally corrupt. And he just kind of quietly sat there and let me do my thing. David's father let him expend every round of ammunition without arguing or retreating. Then he simply looked at David and said, David, I'm really proud of everything you've done in your career. David concluded the show by saying this, I remember looking at my dad, and I thought, I had sort of expected to argue, you know, not to win, but to come to some kind of armistice, you know, some kind of truce. I hadn't expected to lose completely, because you can't argue with decency. You can't argue with gentle goodness. Now, the account, at least the part that I read, did not say whether David then became a believer. But any of you who are here today who have ever tried to project any kind of influence into the life of your adult children know what the temptations are in this situation. And you know that the only way that that man could have responded to his son the way that he did is if that was Jesus responding and not him. If that was the character of Jesus coming through in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to have that kind of gentleness. Gentleness ironically, is a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful virtue. Not, the Bible tells us about, we, we have to use it a lot of different times. It has to be true of us on many occasions, especially, the Bible says, not just when we're trying to share Christ, but when we walk into any kind of conflict, any kind of interpersonal difficulty, any kind of tense situation that might lead in that direction, Scripture tells us that's when we need gentleness, especially when we might need to correct somebody either for an error in their belief or for a sin in their life. It isn't that we're supposed to avoid these things or just walk away from them because God clearly calls us to get involved in these difficult conversations, but you won't get anywhere in them if you don't have a gentle spirit. And I'm sure Peter had to learn this himself. Think about Peter and how he shows up in the Gospels. It's not really part of his character originally, right? Peter had this kind of reckless, cavalier boldness that in many ways is probably the opposite of gentle but he learned it. He learned it. We can learn it too. It is possible to have a very tense discussion and remain gentle in your spirit. It's not easy. It is possible to bring a very forceful argument, like we talked about last week, giving a defense, and remain gentle in your approach. This means there is no room for verbal bullying there is no room for intimidation, for threats, for insults, for cutting sarcasm. For shouting someone down. Gentleness is pretty much the opposite of all these things. Now, where does gentleness come from? As we said, it's a, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. We develop it over the course of our walk with Christ. But in particular, I, I think the key to gentleness is that it recognizes a very important biblical truth about people, particularly about people who don't know the Lord. The Apostle Paul uh, a very famous passage in Romans chapter 1. He goes into a very detailed discussion of, of why people who don't know God tend to think and act the way that they do. 
Um, you can go back, it's probably 13, 14 verses long. But I found out this, um, just in recent weeks, I've been doing my own devotions personally in the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 4, there are a couple of verses where Paul kind of distills that down into a much shorter version. And he says this, this is Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. He says, now this I say and testify on the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The lost and sinful condition of human beings is anchored in the heart, where our will and our emotions and our desires and our values reside. That's, that's where the root of the problem is for all of us. And so while you can use certain techniques to manipulate somebody's behavior, or you can use certain clever arguments to, to affect their thinking. You can even brainwash people with propaganda and get them to think a different way. But you know what? You still haven't really converted anybody. Because spiritual rebirth, though it affects the behavior and it doesn't bypass the mind, needs to happen at the heart level. So the gospel ultimately has to be aimed at the heart. And you cannot approach someone's heart with a bludgeon. It's, it won't work. You cannot beat the heart into submission. It's too stubborn. The heart needs to be won over. And it's God who does the winning over through his love and by the Holy Spirit. But gentleness knows how to stay out of the way and set the table for what God wants to do in the heart of somebody. Some of you have forgotten, or maybe you never really understood it properly, that when you came to faith in Christ, mentally, you were probably convinced of a truth, something you believed. You certainly had awareness of your guilt, and you probably were scared of going to hell. But if you really came to Christ, if you really did, at some level, at some level, you responded not just to the fear of God, but to the love of God. The God who didn't have to do it, but he gave his own son, he sent his own son to a horrible, excruciating death because he couldn't bear to lose you forever. And he did all of this while you were rejecting him and acting as his enemy. Now, if that love does not win you over, then what does? Is that approach not more powerful than coming at you with a whip and coercing you to believe? Gentleness is not coercive. It's considerate. Gentleness is not intimidating. It's inviting. It's winsome, and it reflects the character of Jesus himself, and it reflects the approach of the Holy Spirit to a person's heart. By the time someone is ready to receive Jesus, there will always be a brokenness there that is brought on by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and the only way to approach brokenness is gently. The only way to approach that kind of brokenness is with a gentle spirit. That's why gentleness is so important in sharing our faith. What about this other word Peter uses here, though, respect? In the ESV, it's translated respect. Uh, some of you may have the word fear in your version, and that's because the Greek word here is the word phobos, which we get all our phobias from, very common word for fear. Now, when Peter uses this word, this Greek word, in his letters, it almost always means not fear in the sense of terror or fright, but fear in the sense of reverence and respect. That's how Peter just tends to use it. And in fact, we're going to see that Peter carefully distinguishes between the two. But whatever this word respect means, 
It means more than just approaching people with polite, considerate language and a respectful tone of voice. It does mean that. It doesn't mean less than that, because that's important, but it, it means more than that. In chapter one of this book, Peter, here in 1 Peter, he tells us that this word, this phobos word that he's using, should characterize the way we live our whole lives. He says we should live in reverent fear during what he calls our time of exile. Now, why does he call it our time of exile, our life? Well, this place is not our home. We don't belong here, and we don't own this place. God does. We're just walking around in it. We're just passing through. And in fact, Peter calls us, you may, this is a little more famous when he says this, he calls us aliens and strangers. Now, how many have ever been to a foreign country? Okay, a lot of you. You know how silly it would be to walk around in that foreign country like you own the place, right? If you do, they will call you the ugly American, and they should. Because strangers and aliens are supposed to lay low and be respectful. And that's part of it, certainly. But the, the real reason that Peter calls us to live with this reverent fear is actually because of the greatness of our salvation. He says this, we've been redeemed with the priceless blood of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that, that even qualifies us to appear before a holy God. And so our reverence and respect for other people comes, first of all, from our reverence and respect for God and the knowledge that we are living, not in our world, but in his world, a place where he sees everything that happens, he cares about everything that happens here, he cares about every person that walks this earth, and get this, he is present in every conversation. God is present in every conversation. This means when we talk to unbelievers, there is a holy reverence in our conversation. Even if we're just joking around or talking about the game or the weather or whatever. Because every person, every person we run into on this earth is fearfully and wonderfully made, created in the image of God himself with an eternal soul that is going to spend eternity in one of two places, either in everlasting glory or in everlasting despair. So when we talk with people, we're playing with real bullets. Our words can lead them closer to faith and closer to life, or closer to death. But there's more than that. There's more than that. This knowledge that we've been redeemed by Christ's blood also keeps us from feeling any sense of superiority when we talk to those who don't know Jesus, because we've been saved by grace, not by anything we've done, not by any merit we've achieved, not by any brilliant decision that we've made because we were so smart. It is easy sometimes just in our, our brains, to kind of look down on unbelievers as pagans, as unenlightened, as rebellious and hopelessly lost, and as second-class citizens in God's world. You know what? All of that is true except for the last part. There are no second-class citizens. Are they pagans? Sure. Were we pagans? Oh, absolutely. Are they unenlightened? I suppose so, like we all were. Rebellious, hopelessly lost? Amen, like us too, until Jesus comes in and saves us by his own goodness, not ours. Amen. There is a, there's a quaint expression that we kind of lightly use these days. I've heard it a lot. And, and we, whenever we see some, something real bad happen to some particularly depraved person, like on the news, or maybe a, a non-Christian friend has some sort of experience that's a scandal or a heartbreak or something, and what do we say? We say, well, there but for the grace of God go I, Right? There, but for the grace of God, go I. And you know what? That's a really good expression. The problem is that's all it's become. 
just an expression that we throw around. But its meaning is quite accurate and quite literal, and maybe we need to recover it because it applies to all of us. Peter's instruction here to talk respectfully and fearfully with unbelievers is founded on something he picked up one day when he was in Acts chapter 10, and the Lord said, I want you to go to this guy's house and and share Jesus with him. It's a Gentile. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I I have my, 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 my dignity here. God says, no, you don't. Go visit this guy. And Peter went to the home of Cornelius and saw the way that God wonderfully saved him and his family. And he came away from that experience with a genuine belief in the absolutely equal value, worth, and dignity of every human being on the planet, Jew or Gentile, Christian or non-Christian, black or white, male or female, young or old, educated or uneducated, rich or poor, gay or straight, or whatever label we decide to place on people or whatever label they decide to place on themselves. Nobody in this world is worth more than anybody else or worth less than anybody else. And nobody is more deserving of salvation or less deserving of salvation than anybody else. And it is possible, as far as our part goes, as far as it depends on us, it is possible to have a respectful and gentle conversation with anyone, no matter what kind of background they have, no matter what kind of lifestyle they're living, no matter how much we disagree with them religiously, politically, or otherwise, we are not compromising our beliefs when we treat every human being with equal worth, respect, thoughtfulness, courtesy, and consideration. And in fact, that is one of the defining characteristics of Christianity in the first place. Did you know that? The whole idea of equal worth of all human beings and ultimately equal rights comes from the biblical way of looking at the human race. That's where it came from. Because we're all created in God's image, and then we are only saved by God's grace apart from our own merit. The equality of all people follows logically and necessarily from those two facts. We're equal. But I think we can take this respect thing one or two steps further. I've been trying to find case studies for some of these words we have in 1 Peter 3.15. And if we want to look for a case study or an example of, in the Bible of what this gentleness and respect thing looks like, it's interesting, the closest parallel is actually right in the same chapter. It's in the first part of the chapter where Peter talks about the case of a Christian wife who was trying to win over her unbelieving husband. So let's read verses 1 to 6 here. That's how Peter starts this, this whole chapter. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now I know those verses made some of you bristle. But I want you to notice a few things. I want you to notice how the wife's behavior here is not manipulative or controlling. It's not sneaky or deceptive. It's quiet, it's gentle, it's respectful, it's even obedient. And Peter uses that same word, phobos, in verse 2 to describe her attitude. 
But this is not the fearful attitude that is characterized by fright or terror. Because look at verse 6. It's hard to translate, but literally it says, do not fear any terror. What Paul is saying here, or what Peter is saying here, I'm sorry, is that the wife is told to show respect, but never cower before her husband. It should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. No wife should ever have to be terrified of her husband. And no husband should ever give his wife the slightest reason to cower before him. Showing respect does not always mean looking down at the floor and and just looking at your feet and apologizing for being in the way or or you're sorry you're alive or whatever. No, that's not at all what it means. It means having the strength of character to be humble and gentle and kind and respectful to your husband to approach him, as it were, from below, even though you know, in fact, that you're equals, while still having the courage to speak the truth in love, realizing that your gentle spirit is probably speaking louder than your words ever could. And of course, we look at these verses, and what do we think? We think, oh, well, that's good for the wife. That's for wives in that very specific situation. After all, we know that God wants wives to be respectful and submissive and all that. But what about the rest of us? No, (laughs) that's just the thing. Peter basically tells us in verses 14 and 15 that that approach isn't just for wives married to unbelieving husbands. It's for all of us. We are all supposed to have that same attitude with people. Peter says in verse 14, the one before our verse. He says, there are people out there who will try to attack you or revile you for your good behavior. And then he says, don't be afraid of them. Don't fear the terror. He uses some of the same language. Don't cower before them. But then in verse 15, but you can still be respectful. You can have the courage to be bold, not cower in fear, even as you have the humility and the proper perspective on yourself and where your salvation comes from that allows you to treat everyone, even people who aren't very nice to you, with gentleness and respect. Remember last week we were looking at Paul's uh, defense before those Roman leaders in uh, chapter 26 of Acts when that Roman ruler kind of yelled at him and accused him of being out of his mind in the middle of his talk? Remember what Paul said to Festus? He said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. <laughs> Rather than counterattacking, Paul held his ground and he continued to treat Festus with respect, even if he kind of had to bite his tongue a little bit there, I think, right? But he did. I used an expression a couple minutes ago. I said approaching from below. Approaching from below. What is that? Let me explain what I mean by that. And I want to use Jesus as an example because Jesus, you know who Jesus is. He doesn't have to approach anyone from below, but that's exactly what he did on many occasions. And here's an example. We've gone back a few times in the series to that evangelistic conversation that Jesus had in John chapter 4 with a Samaritan Samaritan woman next to a well in the city of Sychar. And I just want to remind you for a moment, I'm not going to go through the whole conversation, but I want to remind you how that conversation started. It started like this. Jesus looked up at the woman and he said, excuse me, may I please have a drink? That's how it started. Excuse me, may I please have a drink? I'm thirsty. I'm exhausted. It's hot out. Can you help me? Now, you'd think if Jesus really wanted to impress this lady, what he'd have done was this. This is what we'd do. He would have gotten his disciples to draw a whole bunch of water from that well and put it in containers there before they go into town to get lunch, right? So he's there. That way when she shows up, Jesus is able to say, hey, I notice you're here for some water in the heat of the day. You know what? Let me save you some trouble. Here's some free water, courtesy of me and my friends. You don't even have to draw it. And now, since I've served you in this way and earned the right to be heard, 
let me tell you how to be saved. Isn't that how we do it? Now, there's nothing wrong with providing people with water. Just like there's nothing wrong with carrying your neighbor's groceries into their house for them. Some of you have gone to Burkina Faso and drilled wells in the ground so we can do just that. We can provide people with water. And the idea there is in Burkina, put the well in the backyard of the church and let everybody use it, whether they're Christians or Muslims or animists or whoever. So when they ask, hey, isn't this just for the Christians? You can say, no, it's free for everybody. This isn't our water. It's a gift of God. And let me tell you about another gift of God, which is a great testimony, by the way, to the world that we believe everyone is equal in the sight of God and equally in need of his grace. But in this case, back in John chapter 4, look what Jesus does. He puts himself at a disadvantage by asking her for help. He asks her to serve him, which immediately gives her the upper hand in the conversation. But did you see how powerful that is? As this woman comes to the well, she's, she's approaching the well, she sees this Jewish guy sitting by the well. And he would have been, it would have been obvious that he was Jewish because of his clothing. And what she's expecting certainly is that Jesus is going to act like every other Jew, whoever walks through Samaria does, that he's not going to give her the time of day. He's going to be snobbish. He's going to be standoffish. He's going to be superior. He's going to be demeaning. He's going to be holier than thou. And not in a million years would she listen to a person who acted toward her like that if he wanted to talk about religion or faith. But instead, he not only speaks to her, he affirms her dignity by allowing her to serve him. And that opens up the door for a real, honest, and respectful conversation because now they're on level ground. Why? Because he approached her from below. You know, it would be really easy it's really easy to preach on this passage because it's very simple to apply, right? I could have just said, you know what? It just, I could just tell you the obvious, that if you're trying to share Jesus, you shouldn't be pushy, rude, and obnoxious when you talk to people about your faith. Okay, fine, let's go home. We could, I could preach that. Here's the problem. I know you. I know a lot of you. Some of you I've known for a long time. And you know what? You're not pushy, rude, and obnoxious people. You're not. You're, you're not. You're not. I know you're not out there bullying people or, or demeaning people or, you know, insulting people or horse-collaring people and giving them noogies and saying, you know, come to Jesus. You're not doing that. You're not like that. So if I just preach that, then it won't make a whole lot of sense and you'll go home unchanged because most of you don't have to hear that. But, but the more likely thing is that, that a lot of you out there are thinking something like this. I can't share Jesus with people because I just don't have the platform you know, I don't, I don't have the influence. I don't have the leverage. I mean, I'm not the boss. I'm the employee. I'm a support person. People don't think of me as a leader or as exceptionally smart or knowledgeable or maybe even all that helpful. In fact, I'm usually the one asking for help, not giving it. I mean, I'm always the guy borrowing my neighbor's tools, not loaning them. I'd like to be generous in giving, but I feel that like most of the time I'm the one in need. Okay, but don't you see don't you see what Peter is telling us with this talk of respect and reverence and what Jesus shows us in this example? When you go to share Christ with someone, you don't have to have the upper hand. You don't have to have the upper hand. In fact, most people would rather be approached from below than from above, right? I mean, they don't want to be educated or lectured or talked down to. They want to be respected and valued. Now, this is kind of a, a crass analogy, but because it, it, if we share the gospel, we're not selling something, right? But if we were, does the product not sell itself? 
I mean, it isn't us. We are, the Bible tells us that by design, by design, we are plain looking and unimpressive packages. We are, we're jars of clay, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians. Why? He tells us. So that it is always obvious that the power comes not from us, but from the thing that we carry around inside of us. So the Christian way of being an influencer, to use that, that famous word here, is exactly the opposite of the way that the world thinks about influence. It involves humility and weakness. And that is true even if you get drawn into some complicated discussion like we talked about last week. In the final analysis, we need to get to a place where we get out of the way and let the gospel do its convicting and saving work by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me close with this. One of the the watershed moments in all of human history was the night that the Roman Emperor Constantine this was probably, what, 1,700 years ago, something like that. He was, he was about to go into a very important battle, and he had a dream. And in that dream, he reportedly saw a vision of a cross. And there were words by the cross that said this. It said, conquer by this. So he saw a cross and conquer by this. And then after he won that battle, things changed for Christianity. Almost overnight, the faith went from being persecuted to being favored. And you know that a lot of good things went along with that. They did. But in other ways, it was the worst thing that ever could have happened to Christianity. You know why? Because real, authentic Christianity never seems to do very well from a position of power. It just doesn't. I wonder if Constantine ever considered the irony of his vision. Conquer by this. I mean, the cross is not a symbol of victory. It's a symbol of defeat. It's a symbol of weakness. It's a symbol of suffering. In fact, it's probably the ultimate symbol of helplessness. There is nothing less triumphant than a man carrying a cross up a hill. But to us, there's nothing more beautiful. Right? Because God didn't win us over by bullying us into submission. He won us over by loving us into submission. And when we share what we have with other people with gentleness and respect, we invite God to do the same thing for them. That's the idea. Let's pray.